Like, I still step on them, <laughs> but I feel sad doing it. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm Billy Brown, one of your co-hosts with... Tony Crosdale. And we've got... Margaret Rohde. Margaret, what do you do? I'm the conservation manager for a watershed association. Okay. And then, who are we talking to? This is Tyke James. Uh, I hail from Philadelphia, but right now I'm in Washington, D.C. I work with... D.C. Oh, yeah, more or less. Uh, (laughs) And you work for large conservation organization down this there. is very true um and i've been a birder since i was a teenager and i started that with uh tony and i got to meet billy and, and margaret through tony and uh, it's been quite an adventure speaking of adventure should we segue to the new venture go ahead so we are now the wildlife observation network so that we are we are expanding our content, and we've been talking about this for about a year now, but now we're actually seeing it through. So we're going to be a network of podcasts of different topics, and they're all going to be in the same feed for now. We'll see how that goes. We might put them into separate feeds if we get feedback and people want, want to do it like that, um, especially if maybe some are more kid-oriented, some are more adult. We want more to parse those out. But for now, your feed's going to be changed over to the Wildlife Observation Network You'll still get our wildlife podcast probably still at least monthly or so, but you're going to get a lot more content such as Onward for Wildlife, which is Taiki's like wildlife policy podcast. I'm going to be doing a podcast with my wife and my friend Kim about um, ecotourism. That's going to be called the um, – excuse me. Brain fart. That's going to be called the – On the Wing. On the Wing. Why am I blanking? On the Wing. Me and Mike McGraw are doing a podcast called From Bouncers to Birders. Billy and McGraw are going to be doing a herping podcast called Herping Ain't Easy. Mm. And Taiki and I, what's our podcast? Brothers and Birding. Brothers and Birding. So, yeah, so you, we're going to have a YouTube channel. Everything's going to be on that. We're going to still have the audio feed. And we hope to do a lot of content. And, you know, you should be getting probably weekly podcasts soon. Yep. Awesome. Well, now slide into our usual podcasty kind of stuff so i want to always remind folks to get in touch with us we actually got some feedback i shouldn't say it that way of course we have some feedback from listeners and we're going to read that in a second uh but the way you get in touch with us we got a bunch we got um you can tweet at us at herb wildlife cast if you're middle-aged or older like tony and me you can do <laughs> things like email um mm-hmm. at urban wildlife cast at gmail.com um you can find us on facebook i guess we don't have an instagram feed yet but maybe Wildlife Observation Network will at some point. Um, these are all ways to, to get back to us and let us know what you think of the podcast. Give us some feedback. Give us some ideas. I'm looking at my computer for a sec while I'm looking back at some of the feedback we got. So you might recall a recent episode that we did was about wild boar around the world. <laughs> and uh, we got some stuff that we're, we're cooking up with that. Um, I know we were talking about what about wild boar in the United States. And then we realized that that actually there are Maybe this is a meaningless distinction, but you have feral hogs in the United States that are descended from wild boar as well as escaped uh, domestic pigs, same species really. And they, they're they getting to be a pest around cities like Dallas in, in the Southwest. And, and so. I keep forgetting, I keep, but I, I do have a, 
person to interview about Dallas. We'll, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. We're getting there. And um, we'll accept it. We're getting there. Uh, <laughs> and so the we were I think we referred to New Zealand as not having any boar. And then someone wrote us. Andy from Philly wrote me right away to say, "Oh yeah, there's definitely wild boar in New Zealand, and that people hunt them there with dogs, which is how they hunt a lot of wild boar in the states. If you're going to recreationally hunt wild boar in the United States, um, one of the ways you do it is you get a pack of dogs that basically chase the boar down." and like grab it and pin it down and then you kill it there versus like the youtube videos you can find of people like trying to like eradicate them as pests and do it much more efficiently and there they like set up these pens with feeders and they get like a whole a whole i forget what they're called like there's a term for it not herd but basically a herd of boar in there drop the gate and they just kill all of them and Um, that's like you said 30 to 50 feral hogs (laughs) yeah in the shot yeah 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 Oh, is that the one, the guy in his yard? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the guy. Um, I'm just, just saying, like, is a herd of hogs 30 to 50? Like, reasonable. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, no, so that was actually an interesting thing. And there was a, what pot, man, I'm forgetting what podcast covered it. They called that guy. And uh, this is something we can look up later. Hey, podcast listeners. I double check this. The podcast I've been thinking of is Reply All and their episode number 149 called 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. And the guy who had tweeted about all this initially is named Willie McNabb. Highly recommend you listen to that podcast episode. Willie was, a, I think, a much more thoughtful guy than people treated him when they reacted to the tweet. Uh, and it's a just interesting podcast about the whole wild hog and, and, and feral hog and wild boar issue as it plays out in rural America. Thanks. Yeah. But it's a neat news podcast that, that called the dude – um, and he was a really interesting, like thoughtful guy who was like, yeah, my, his basic point was that like his point was not so much that, well, I won't speak for him too much, um, but <laughs> basically saying that, yeah, it, these guns aren't just used for terrorism and war. And then the podcast got more into like the question of wild boar because people treated this as a silly concept that you'd be freaked out by having tons of wild boar in your yard. And he was like, no, no, in Arkansas, this really happens. Mm-hmm. Um, that you'll be in your, hanging out in your yard and the wild boar tear through. Um, and uh, it, 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 it's, it's a problem in Dallas, problem in Arkansas, problem all around the southeast and southwest um, where there's a whole lot of wild boar. But it was an interesting podcast, interesting dude. We've got an interesting email that I will have been exchanged with a guy, um, Bill Kerrigan, um, who wrote us to thank us for the cat-related episodes that we do and the sources and links we've posted over the years. He'll be using them in an environmental history course he's teaching on birds and humans in North America. Um, so that was neat. He challenged a little bit how we refer to the, and I never know quite know the right, the, the right way to put this. I don't want to say the cat people because Tony's a cat person. And does your cat ever go outside? Nope. There you go. Um, and so to be a cat person is not to be someone who favors outdoor feral cats remaining outdoors. But there are people who, in my least terrible term for them, is outdoor cat hoarders. And the people who advocate for those, because I don't really think we we cover this a lot, but we don't think that it's nice to the cats. So we wouldn't say that it's like kind to the cats. It's terrible for wildlife. It's not good for public health or hygiene. Um, but still, the people who are really into this, the alley cat allies folks, et cetera, we that we are definitely harsh on them. I respectfully disagree. I think we are appropriately harsh in debates like this. You're never trying to win over the true believers on the other side. I don't think there's much to do to win over folks like that. What you're doing is, is trying to, to speak to the people who are undecided or more in the middle or, or one step in one direction or another. But obviously room for debate on that. 
um, maybe not wade into that so much at the moment, but thank you very much for the feedback. And I love I, I love getting into discussions like this. I don't know. It was one of those times where like I waited a few more days and I should have tried back. So I wanted a time to sit down and like write something. Can I add something on that, Billy? Of course you can. Like yeah. um, the like getting more into the cat issue. You know, we want to talk about what policy is like on the local or state level for domestic domestic cats and um, other feral animals. Uh, those are conversations that I look forward to having on my podcast, On Work for Wildlife. Awesome. I look forward to having those with yeah. you, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe you can get somebody from the unnamed organization that you work for to be on the podcast, Tyke. Yeah, yeah um, that, that, that might be possible. I can, I can, see, what <laughs> I can see what I can do. Yeah, right. Moving forward, I think uh, there needs to be a little bit of a, our, our professional lives and our podcasting lives more separation <laughs> maybe yeah but I, I i don't know i think these are we we handle some well, of these topics with kid gloves and we don't need to yeah um i think people are are, are oddly afraid of the cat hoarders well i mean literally i had cat hoarders uh, um you know uh, contact my work because they I think that, that yeah they're trying to dox you essentially yeah. yeah they think because they're mistakenly they don't realize that they say that um, my beliefs are counter to city policy. They don't realize that um, that the agency, they, the group they think, the group that supports um, community, you know, outdoor cats um, feeding is not an actual city agency. So they don't realize that they're actually, um, they, so they don't have, they had, they don't, and even if it was, um, we have my city, the police union literally has billboards uh, against the district attorney. Oh, yeah. You're allowed to differ with your with your employer as long as you don't um, act on that in your job. Well, you know? separate it as you're, as you're speaking from your personal yeah. perspective, not as your professional. Yeah. Yeah, my job's the same way. We got a, a great call from Carl in Birmingham, England, and he wrote us some kind words, included a short recording about his local urban marshland, um, which is a topic I love. I feel like, you know, there's so many cities around the world that have some kind of like wasteland along the coastline that was then reclaimed and, and, and has become like a wonderful place to go observe waterfowl, other kinds of marshland stuff. Um, when I was in Buenos Aires, briefly after college, there was a great spot like that um, in Philadelphia with the, the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge. And so we're gonna listen to Carl from Birmingham talk about his spot. Hi guys, my name's Carl. I'm a birder from uh, Birmingham in England. And I've started re listening to your podcast recently, and I've really enjoyed it, actually. It's given me quite a few things to think about and to, to reconsider. Um, and I thought I'd send you a quick recording about my local wildlife reserve, where I actually volunteer. It's, it's called RSPB Sandwell Valley, and it's on just on the periphery, on the edge of Birmingham. Now, it used to be an old coal mine, uh, an old pit, and became disused and was then flooded and turned into a nature reserve in the early 1980s. Um, yeah, he's on the on the edge of Birmingham, which is a city of about a million people, and it's it's hemmed in by motorways and uh, railway lines, and it gets quite a lot of use by the local population, which is good because they can then come in contact with or experience um, wildlife species that they wouldn't otherwise be aware of. Now, despite a lot of the disturbance we do get, some really interesting resident species as well as, as migrating species coming through. Among the residents you'd get jack snipe and common snipe which build up in winter, they're 
just about returning to the site now um and you'd get quite a lot of wintering wildfowl ducks i'm thinking potchard golden eye shovelers gooseanders as well gooseanders can i think our highest count was a, was 90 odd which is quite good for, for a small reserve it's essentially just a, a small lake with uh, reed beds around it and a bit of low-lying scrub as well as a really good visitor center to be fair the past 10 years we've had oyster catchers breeding here uh, usually one pair breeding um, generally they raise two chicks this year they managed to raise four which is brilliant uh, and you think an oyster catcher is really a coastal species but in this location they, they haven't really got any competition there isn't many predators so they, they can be successful and carve out a little niche for themselves um, oddly enough you might be able to hear it in the background we've got ringneck parakeets on site there's about 150 individuals and they sort of i think since the 1950s they've really established themselves from escapees from from cage birds i, I suppose uh and they are a tree cavity nester so we do need to have a think about what the local cavity nesters like woodpeckers and, and nut, nut hatches are how they're, they're faring in, in comparison to the, the parakeets, which are a lot bigger and they've got this sort of mob mentality about them. Um, we're just about reaching the peak of the migration, the autumn migration now. And yesterday we had a goshawk come through the valley, which is really good. That, that doesn't happen very often at all. But we've also had um, flycatchers and red starts, wind chats and stone chats trickling through which is, is always nice to see um, I'm actually here today because we're hosting the Peregrine Network Conference so I can think off the top of my head of about five or six local pairs, breeding pairs of peregrines so it'd be quite interesting to see how they're faring and what we can do to support them a little bit more and uh, Tony I've got a question for you I, I used to be quite a big fan of, of your band Rambo when, when you guys were active and I can recall there was a trailer for a documentary I think you were doing called Life Birds. Uh, whatever happened to that project? Did it get shelved? Did it appear and I just missed it somehow? Because I remember the trailer got me pretty hyped <laughs> when I first saw it. So keep doing what you're doing, guys. I've, I've really enjoyed the, the podcast and keep it up. Nice one. See you later. Yeah, Tony, what's up with the trailer? Well, I think the thing that happened with that was Andy's film career took off. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't have time to, uh, uh, we didn't really have so time. who's to... Andy? Andy, was... Andy is the guitar player of Rambo, who is one of my best friends, you know, best man at my wedding, uh, along with Bull, co-best man. He moved to Los Angeles, and he is a very successful cinematographer, so... He just, you know, his career took off, and so that project kind of got shelved. So, but you never, you never know. I mean, I think the video aspect of this venture um, may bring that back, you know, that sort of content back. So, we'll see. Um, birding is often hard to portray. Uh, I think what Jason Ward is doing is probably the one of the best things, you know. Um, that that's happening, you know, birding on video. What's Jason's handle? Is he? Um, Birds North America. What I forget. Birds North America. That yeah. Was it. But he's... Yeah. I think that's a pretty great project. And I think, you know, 
I felt like that's about the most successful version of what we were trying to do um, that people come up with. I know when National Geographic covered the World Series of Birding, they sent four photographers and, and planned this giant um, article. It was, you know, was, it was going to be this huge deal. I mean, in these, these photographers they sent, they had um, their like assistants were huge professional photographers in their own right. Like these were like unbelievable, like um, Mikey Mashta and um, uh, the other guy was Michael O'Brien. Um, these were huge name photographers came down and they, they scrapped it. They made it an, a web only article. And the only picture was actually of our team. And it, it completely scratched it. It was like, it's just birds aren't that interesting to photograph, you know, and, there was a TV show. Um, well, you're standing around with binoculars looking at something. Yeah, there was a TV show. Um, <laughs> but you get to point at things. That's not exciting. Yeah, the TV show Birding Adventures TV. Um, that I think had two seasons. Um, it just uh, it's a hard thing. Um, so I think uh, you know, um, Birds North America is, is is great, and I think we'll do some more uh, birding related content. But with what you know, especially with Taki and I. Um, but I, I think it'll kind of be a different focus. And, you know, if you want to watch birds, you know, look what the Attenborough specials are like the best bird footage you can imagine. Yeah. Um, that new um, Netflix special on like bird mating displays is really good. It's the bird bird watching itself is, is kind of unless they want to do some kind of reality show where they fake drama is inherently be kind of difficult. That's cool. Cheers, cheers, me. I hope to run into you in England someday. Yeah, I'll say I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> uh, my uh, my family, my my dad had a job in Birmingham for a few years, and so both my little sister and I were born in Birmingham. Um, and so I, I to this day, my passport will always say, not to say, it will always say, like you know, birthplace, and since Alabama, USA. That's fine. Yep. That's like much like my birth certificate is the bait of my existence. Why well, would it say County of Birth Montgomery? Oh. <gasps> Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. The fire department. Man. Their plan. The doctor they signed to my mom was, you know. Delivered in Montgomery County. It was in, like, yeah, Abington. It was Rolling Hill Hospital or is it in Abington. And so I was. It's not too far from where you grew up. Well, if you. The, the way Philadelphia is shaped is like a Y. Yeah. You know, kind of like in. And Abington's like in the middle. So it's kind of like. Just outside, it's in a weird way. It's like almost more centrally located than a lot of. Abington is actually more centrally located to most Philadelphia than Center City Philadelphia would be. Yeah. So you know, if you're in Northwest Philly or you're in Northeast Philly, Abington is actually like in between the two. Yeah. So it makes sense, but it's just weird. Like, and I have friends of the opposite where they live there. You know, they're born out in the. They're they're from the suburbs, but they went to Einstein or Penn and were born. So they say County of Philadelphia, but they're. From Ardmore, yeah, yeah, but in well, Delaware so, County. So it's it, so you'll never run for political office because when they when they do the birther thing with you, you're definitely going to crumble. <laughs> There's no way you're getting out of that. I think the, the way you look the way you look at my birth certificate and the story behind it, I actually think in some ways it's like a quintessential Philadelphia story. Yeah. Oh, course, wow. good, good spin yeah, on that. City good government spin. would have a, the, <laughs> a deal with a suburban hospital rather than a city hospital. Like it just not make sense, you know. <laughs> Right, oh, you got well, something in your beer, Tony. So we're eating we're, we're eating a tomato pie right now. So the, this bears a little explanation for the non-Philadelphians um, in that, uh, yeah, everybody knows what pizza is. Um, in Philadelphia, you can definitely get excellent pizza. 
and Joy was just actually talking about this. You get multiple kinds of tomato pie. And, and so the funny thing is, is my family, we went for a walk in Houston Meadow and the Wissahickon, which is a big park right next to Tony's house, basically. And on the way up, we passed by an old family um, bakery called Marciano's, uh, where whenever we pass it and they're open, we grab half a tomato pie. And then I got here and I was about to run into Tony's house to grab a plate to grab some of the tomato pie out of our trunk and bring it in. And then I saw he had a tomato pie already in the house from a different bakery. Um, <laughs> so, but a tomato pie is a, it's basically, you explain it. You had the good explanation. Of the tomato. Right, so there's two kinds of tomato pie. And yeah. this kind is like <laughs> focaccia style, where it's basically like a big rectangle of focaccia with tomato sauce on it. Yep. And it's at room, served at room temperature. Right. And the sauce is generally very sweet. Yep. And the other kind of tomato pie is essentially like a not really upside down pizza because only one two components are switched, but it's it's a it's a it could be square or it could be round, and it could be really thin crust or it could be a little bit thick chewy crust. But the main thing is is the sauce is above the cheese, the cheese is below the sauce, and and that's a and so Pika's in Delaware County is famous for it. Santucci's in North Philly, uh, Tony's place in in Northeast Philly in coincidentally. I, li- I lived right next to that, right nearby. So I eat Tony's growing up, and it's still my favorite to this day. Though I really like Pika's. Um, I like Tantucci's a lot too. So I, I, I actually really like the. Uh, I like both kinds, and I crave them at different times. You know. Yeah. So. Now, it's one of these things that I think because it doesn't have cheese on it, it's a slightly lighter thing, and so I'll find myself like, oh, just having one more piece, you know, and then like plow through half of one of these things without even thinking about it. Good stuff. It is good stuff. All right. Okay. Talk about that forever. Um, so the the content we were we had pulled together for this episode is stuff that I did kind of opportunistically. We're friends with a woman named Michelle Niedermeyer, who uh, heads up integrated pest management. Well, urban integrated pest management, in particular for uh, the Penn State Cooperative Extension. And so Michelle's office just happens to be like literally across the street from my office uh, in Center City, and. Uh, we've had Michelle on the podcast a couple times, um, for example, talking about mice and things like that a few years ago. She's wonderful, and she had been looking to get out with me and kill some spotted lanternflies. Uh, and so she wrote me into it, and I was yeah, I'm happy to pop outside lunch and, and get some fresh air and squash some invasive exotic bugs. Uh, so we popped outside, and, and of course, since, you know, we podcast, um, and I hadn't really thought about the video component yet. We just did audio. Uh, but I got the audio of us running around squashing spider lantern flies and scraping off their egg masses. So this is a bit of an impromptu recording. I'm here. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Michelle Niedermeyer. And Michelle, you've been on the podcast before. Remind us what you do for a living. I work for the Pennsylvania Integrated Pest Management Program, and we help people with pest problems. And so in people who are listeners of the podcast who live in Philadelphia around, let's say, the south eastern third of Pennsylvania. Um, If you're at all interested in nature or gardening, you've been hearing about and seeing something called a spotted lanternfly. Um, uh, You're the pest lady. What's a spotted lanternfly? (laughs) Uh, It's actually a leafhopper. So it's more closely related to cicadas, um, but it is a non-native and invasive insect that has uh, made, especially the southeast corner of Pennsylvania, uh, a new home. And it has uh, some potential to eat many, many things that we like to eat, including grapes and hops. 
um, but also it saps the suck sucks the sap there you go there you go <laughs> out of uh, many different uh, varieties of trees uh, right now we're standing under a a magnolia this is a magnolia grandiflora this is like the big southern magnolia with the big shiny leaves great uh, ornamental planting we were just a minute ago under a weeping willow where there have been tons of them i noticed that weeping willow because this is in a park near my office, uh, Independence Historical Park, also near Michelle's office. Our offices are basically across an alley from each other. Um, and a birding buddy and I come out here and look at birds, and at one point we were underneath this weeping willow where we see a lot of birds, and um, we felt little droplets <laughs> like on hitting us. And I looked up and realized it was like the honeydew of the, the sap suckers. Like, like aphids, a lot of sap sucking bugs will um, exude a sugary liquid is kind of a waste product of sucking plant sap. And, um, and indeed that's one of the problems with these guys apparently is that their, their, their honeydew, it's called, can, um, can, can help uh, produce or, or grow a kind of damaging fungus for the plants. Um, and uh, any case, so, so we realized this tree was full of, of, of these sap suckers. And so Michelle and I made a, a lunch date to come out and and, and, and take our, our frustrations out on, our frustrations about exotic invasive bugs out on these sap suckers, and they're, in particular, they're egg cases. Right now, it is in the 50s and sunny. Right. It's getting chilly. The, the, we did swash a few adults, but they're looking a little bit... They're a little slow moving. Yeah, then there's a bunch of dead ones around. I think they're, right. the next cold night, they're all gonna die. But their eggs will persist, and so... <laughs> And here, describe, what, are, what, is it, what do these eggs look like? All right, so what the eggs look like is um, just a patch of uh, grayish concrete in yeah. a, kind of an oblong shape. And underneath that gray concrete is where the eggs actually are. And there could be anywhere from 30 to 60 eggs underneath this. This is an egg mass. Um, and what we've been doing is just taking the edge of a fly swatter and scraping the egg cases. This is not just any fly swatter, Michelle. Well, it's the Pennsylvania Integrated Pest Management Program's fly swatter. Join the IPM SWAT team, if you will. That Michelle has 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 affixed a lanternfly informational card slash scraper to also. So yes. It's, so yeah. it's a multi-use tool. And <laughs> we haven't really found any of the egg masses on the trunks of the trees themselves, but we are finding quite a few on branches. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we aren't able to reach all of them. Um, they seem to be up in the trees fairly high, and even with our fly swatters, we aren't able to reach them all. But we are scraping the ones off of the branches that we can reach. Um, so that is the noise. of scraping an egg mass off of a tree. Um, and so these guys, they, what, they get released in Berks County a few years ago somehow? Correct. I, you know, it, it could have come from many places accidentally. They're hitchhikers. Yeah. Um, probably came uh, via a shipment on a pallet. Um, they do lay their eggs on many things, uh, dead and alive. You walk over to the next magnolia? Uh, sure. Okay. And uh, both... Uh, natural and man-made so we've seen egg cases on plastic children's toys but also on rusty um, metal objects in people's backyards and trees um, and again grapes and hops seem to be favorites but um, which is a big deal in Pennsylvania because we don't think of PA as a wine growing region which to some extent it is but there's a big table grape industry out right. in northwestern Pennsylvania 
which gets Pennsylvania agricultural folks really, and USDA, really concerned about this. Um, and the, and the, uh, to describe them, they, the, the adults are about what, three quarters of an inch long? Yeah, about an inch. Um, they look almost like a moth that's kind of like a, a tan or taupe gray kind of thing with speckles, black speckles, and then they have an underwing that's like a scarlet red color. Um, my little sister, who's visiting from New York City and is wonderful but not much of a nature person, um, texted me a picture and was like, Billy, what are these watermelon bugs that are flying all over the place? Because <laughs> she hadn't seen them in New York, but was seeing them all over Philly. Um, and those are lanternflies. And so basically, Philadelphia has been gripped with like spotted lanternfly. I don't want to say mania, because it's not like a pleasurable thing, but people are just like having all kinds of fun squashing them and posting pictures of how they're squashing them. Um, I think someone even made a graphic that included Gritty uh, leading the charge. Gritty is the mask, the, the weird new mascot of the Flyers. Can we reach that one? Um, no. And that, that is our frustration, is that I'm, I'm about a foot too short. I am 5'10ish on a good day, and I can't reach these guys, all of them. Uh, but yeah, so people are just loving killing lanternflies. But I think the whole thing, I'm a bit of a pessimist in this, I think the whole thing's pointless. Um, it's, it's good to, to get people excited and interested in invasive species and what we could possibly do about them. Oh my word, is that just one giant patch or is that mold? Sorry, that's, sorry. we're looking at a fun patch of fungus on oh, the I dead branch. Fungus, For yeah. a second I thought it was the biggest lanternfly egg mass no. ever. Um, but last, this is my story I tell about these guys. Last year I was at, oh you spotted another one. Um, I was at, I can get that one. Here, you hold the phone while I do this. I was at the, uh, the service plot, the rest stop on the Pennsylvania Turnpike Northeast Extension, which runs north out of Philadelphia, basically, up into the Poconos. And in Allentown, there's a service plaza, rest stop. And I was there last fall, and the place was swarming with adult lanternflies. And for me, to, to see them at a transportation hub, like, getting ready to lay their eggs on on trucks and cars all around right. us, I was like, "This is we're we're, we're done." Yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot to be said for hitchhikers, right? Yeah, I mean, no. they, they are traveling on our cars and on our trucks and on our trains and on our buses along uh, rivers and rails and highways. Um, oh, and what's their favorite host plant? Oh, the red maple. No, no, oh, no. Oh, the uh, the tree of heaven or the ailanthus. Ailanthus altissima, right. which is like the most common urban weed yes. tree there is. It is also a <laughs> non-native invasive plant that's on the noxious weed list. It is, but it's all and it's also along every railroad yes, and road leading from city to city in the Northeast. You know, I mean, um, you could say we've kind of done this to ourselves. Yeah, we we gave them like <laughs> a, a a highway with tons of rest stops. Yes. And so uh, if you build it, they will come, and here we are. And here we are. So on the upside, there's. Seem to, they seem to be susceptible to some pathogenic fungi um, that sort of like you'll find some of them like with like like cotton like like little cotton balls fuzz on them and that's yeah. them getting eaten alive by fungi so that's a hope um, but I think this is uh, what is, what is that that is not a leaf hopper that is just a plain old stink bug okay huh. I don't even think it's a marmorated stink bug I think it's just it's some other kind of stink bug yeah that doesn't look like a brown marmorated no i mean it's funny you, you, you don't I, I don't as much as i'm out here looking at birds i don't sit here and scrutinize tree bark much um which you know sounds like a silly thing to say but we should all do it more often you see some interesting bugs like Absolutely. when you're watching birds flying around eating things they're eating things that they are seeing on the tree um so yeah so this is 
and I and I admit I've been sort of grumpy about not wanting to cover the spotted lanternflies because everyone's talking about spotted lanternflies. But it is an interesting story, um, and it's sort of it is in, as much as we talk about the really depressing invasive species like the emerald ash borer, which is like killing ash trees all over North America, all over well at least the Northeast yeah. and, and Midwest of North America, and then. The Dutch elm beetles, you know, which wiped out most of our elm trees, and the count like the fungi, gypsy moths. Gypsy moths. We've got um, chestnut blight. Yeah. Um, and we're not too far away uh, in Washington. No, in um, two blocks over, there's the hybrid chestnut trees that still seem like they're alive. It's good. Um, so we all these historic and like it, it's 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 scary slash interesting to be like. At the at the at ground zero of a, of another wave of an invader, um, but hopefully this one won't take. I mean, this is the thing, and I'll recommend a book of that I love, the Ecology of Center City Philadelphia by Ken Frank, um, who's a friend of the podcast, and he talks about various other past exotic bugs, for example, that that flourished and then just died out. Um, that somehow our like local parasitoid wasps or whatever else caught up with them. Um, the, uh, the the one of them is the the Alanthus silkworm moth. Oh, nice. So it's like a big you know the, the silkworm moths get really big and kind of color, kind of colorful. I once found a a really big Cecropia moth not too far from here, which mm-hmm. is like a math a really big reddish like dark red beautifully patterned moth. Um, it's a silkworm moth. And uh, there's an Alanthus silkworm moth that was introduced, apparently, I think it was introduced on purpose as part of like one of the many efforts to start a silk industry. Um, but it spread, was everywhere, and then whoop, it's gone. Um, and apparently like some native or some exotic parasitoid wasp caught up with it. Um, and so I hope that'll happen with the lanternflies. Yeah, I mean, there is a balance to nature in terms of predator, prey, parasites. You just hope it takes more than like 10,000 years to reach balance. Yeah. <laughs> right now it's not looking so good, but we'll see what happens in the spring. I'll quote the economist John Maynard Keynes when asked about the impact of his recommended policies in the long run, and he said something like, well, in the long run, we're all dead. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you hope, hope things work sooner. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Billy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Exotic invasive... What do you think about spotted lanternflies, Margaret? Okay, so I feel kind of sorry for them because it's like, it's not their fault that they came over here. They're beautiful if you look at them. Like their wings, the front, what do you call it, the forewing? Yeah. These, it looks like a scroll, like an ancient scroll. Like if you look at it closely, it's like white. It's got these black yeah. lines. You don't see other things like that around here. So I think they're beautiful. I think they're really cool. I think like with any invasive species, you got to kind of admire them for taking advantage of their situation. And, you know, like I still step on them, <laughs> but it, I feel sad doing it. But, you know, I yeah. guess every little bit helps. Yeah, I killed a mouse the other day. It was caught a glue trap. Oh, okay, I hate glue traps, but I'm, I had a bad batch of, had, someone gave us, a, donated some bird seed, and we didn't, stupidly, didn't have the metal trash cans available to put it in. And then we got a bit of a mouse infestation. And so we, you know, we did all the cultural controls that you're supposed to do, and got all our food and everything. But now we still got mice, and it's the winter. I don't have, to, I don't, I'm not too worried about snakes coming in. But it put a whole bunch of glue traps and tried to get a handle on it, and almost caught on there, and 
put it out. It's misery and it hurts. It feels you know, it's a beautiful, adorable little creature. But it is. Yeah, and no, I think about this when I snap trap them. Uh, they, they ignore the snap traps in, in our, my facility. <laughs> and the exterminator has yeah. now come. We have a new contract, and they come out and been deploying like two dozen snap traps. Soon, maybe theirs are better, but the ones I bought online, you know, they call one and the rest. Well, they literally yeah. eat the peanut butter off of them. And they're supposed to be baited already, but anyway, back to the lantern flies. So you've mixed feelings, but you still kill them? Oh, yeah, I still kill them. I don't know if you guys heard this, but there's like, you know, stepping on them isn't always easy because they're fat to plant out first, they're fast. Yeah. But if you try three times, they get fatigued. <laughs> Is that something you've heard? No, it makes sense. You know, they're cold-blooded animal. They don't you know. Yeah. Um, you just got to wear them down, which feels even worse. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> in um, what's the heck, and there's certain like, um, the BB trees, like the Avodia trees, that current, I think they're from Korea or whatever, and they'll be covered. The bark, you can't even see the tree anymore. It's covered in them, and you just like smash them as many as you can at a time. It's well, they're East Asian. Um, they're they're East Asian in origin, so it makes sense that the East Asian trees that we're talking about, those yeah. trees you just mentioned, Atlantis, are ones that they're, they're they they gravitate towards. I had slightly mixed feelings. I, mean, I, I you know, I, I'm not a grape farmer or don't have a vineyard, you know, so I, I have less of, of an investment in this. Um, but do you like wine? Okay, I do, but, you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's it's a big country. A lot of places they could they could invest. Um, so I, I we're talking about this with Michelle, and I really quickly want to say, I kept saying, um, Tony's going to grab a drink real quick. Um, I kept, brandy, speaking of brandy. Um, oh, we're going to use a grape distillate over there. We we mourn the ones that did take hold, like the help me pronounce this word, Tony. The hemlock woolly adelgid adelgids. Where you go to there? Hemlock woolly adelgids, woolly adelgids, which are wiping out hemlocks in much of the United, eastern United States. But then for every one that takes hold, there's probably like hundreds that don't quite make it. And so I feel like this one's gotten away from us already. But we'll see if it actually if it takes or doesn't take. I don't know. It, yeah. I mean the. I remember when I was in grad school. I took some class on um, on sort of the risk management, or sorry, the risk assessment process when you're looking at um, in environmental regulation, basically. And one of the things they were talking about was how do you how do you monitor for invasive species and coming in, or for, for novel species coming in. And I don't know, if you, in a world with international trade, it's almost impossible. I don't know how you would check every wooden pallet for a concrete colored smear, you know? Or like, that that would be the egg mass. Like it's... I mean, I already say egg mass. It makes you think of Eggman by the Kinks. I'm a King Kong man. I'm a voodoo man. I'm an egg man. Is it the eighth man? Oh, you're right. It's Eggman. Eggman. <laughs> eighth man. Eggman. Oh, what am I thinking of? Take, take that out. That's all right. It's eight man. I think it's eight man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's eight man. Eight man. Egg, egg, egg mess, egg man. I think we've actually just thought of a video <laughs> concept about spy lanternflies yeah. for the podcast. Eggman is a beastie boy. Well, yeah. he had cakes. You yeah. know, that's a great song. Look the cakes. Techie, I believe a politician a friend of yours your right is concerned about this issue. Is that the case? Yes, yes, it is. Um, as Billy noticed, uh, or as, as Billy mentioned, uh, this is a huge issue in southeastern PA. And the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture did a briefing with the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Um, and so a freshman representative, Malcolm Kenyatta, in, he represents North Philadelphia. How do you know Malcolm uh, Kenyatta? Hmm? How would you happen to know him? 
Oh yeah, Malcolm. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and um, I, I worked on his uh, primary and general election uh, back in 2018. Full disclosure. Um, and so I also have him have a, have a, as a friend on on Facebook, and he posted a little while ago um, that you know he he you know to elevate some legitimacy to the issue. Um, he posted a little while ago in his neighborhood in North Philly a spotter at Land and Fly, and then him stepping on it. And what I believe to be Nikes. <laughs> um, this year, uh, my wife and I, uh, Angie, who wants to be involved with your podcast, Taiki, because he works in policy and has more than work in policy, and it's very near to her heart. But anyway, so we, for our anniversary, we went out to um, this restaurant, uh, the was Founding Farmers in King of Prussia. Uh, it's a nice, nice spot. And, um, it's in the, it's like near the King of Prussia Mall and like this like area of like courtyards and, and shops and whatnot. And so we were sitting down, uh, we're waiting for a table and we're down in the cafe and looked down the courtyard. And this is like, you know, it's this right now is like, it's like suburban sprawl. It's like, I think the King of Prussia is like by volume, it's not the size, but by volume, the biggest mall in America or one of them. It's like this huge mall. And it's just like, you know, it's just asphalt and concrete in like apartment complexes, and and it's one of the most miserable places. In there's, there's no. Yeah. It's great for commerce, and yeah. you know, but I mean, like, if you want to get like, if you want to go shopping and be stuck in traffic in oddly short distances, yeah. for your whole freaking day, <laughs> trying to like return one thing at crate and crate and barrel or something, yeah, yeah. go to King of Prussia. Go ahead. Yeah. But they have a Duluth store, and I love my Duluth. I know you need Duluth. So store. anyway, so uh, placement. Well, I was sitting there, and the people in the in the courtyard, the cafe, there was just lantern flies landing on the table, like like, <laughs> like 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 a ton of them just landing on all these people's food. And like, there's only a few like little like ornamental trees here or there, like just not like a forest or like oh, but, yeah, tree trees. So I was so my parents live in a in an apartment building in Center City, um, and like a lot of apartment buildings in Philadelphia and sort of downtown Philadelphia, there's a pool on the roof, and so we're it's a what is it, 29 stories or something like that? And so I'm up in the pool, and, uh, you know, this is a spot not too far as the bird flies from City Hall. So I sometimes yeah. hear, like, peregrines or see peregrines flying above us from the from the uh, City Hall family. Um, and I'm sitting in the pool, and what plops into the pool next to me? Lantern. Spy lantern fly. And another one plops in the pool next to me. Well, and I'm like, I am really high up right now. And yeah. so if they're getting carried around by winds this out this high off the ground, all you need is like one one storm, you know, move in a funky direction. They're gonna get blown inland, like past the quarantine zone. Yeah, I, it, this is scary. I was uh, so as we know, I, I live in Philadelphia, but I live in a residential neighborhood right next to one of the largest parks, Betty City in the world. Yes, was Hagen. And my house is, is we're on a hill, um, so the hill behind my house. Um, I'm sitting up there um, next to my shed. There's like a flat part uh, where I, I put chairs down and I, and I hawk watch. So I was sitting there in September uh, and yeah. doing some hawk watching. You see, you see an eagle yet? Oh, I saw an eagle like first week I moved in. A golden eagle? Not a golden eagle, no. Oh. This is September, <laughs> so it's good for broad wings and, you know. Because I know one of your goals for Philadelphia is golden eagle, yeah. yeah. So I was sitting up there and I noticed that there is some lantern flies on my shed. And oh. I was like, what? Not, 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 and then like, I look up and I, and uh, it's still um, chimney swift season. 
Uh, and it was getting kind of. Oh, you like, know what it was? I was one of my favorite birds. I wasn't actually looking for. I wasn't hawk watching. I don't remember. I was looking for night hawk, which is funny because in are kind of hawk watching. Yeah, night hawk watching. But in uh, when I lived in West Philly, or Angie who lives in South Philly, I get night hawks from our, our front porch or from uh, from her skylight or bathroom. You can hear them because they nest on row house roofs. Um, so they're actually scarcer in Philadelphia, like in the, you know, where I live is like single family houses. In the greener areas, yeah. it's hard to find them. It's yeah. funny because they don't have the, the nesting substrate they, they prefer. Um, but they, they hunt over these meadows. And I'm like, as a crow flies, like, what, like less than a mile to Houston Meadow, where you see them every night. I'm like trying to see one. And I'm scanning and there's still chimney swifts circling around. So look at chimney swifts. And, you know, with your binoculars, with the, with the focal, um, the field of view. Not the field of view, the uh, depth, depth of field, the depth of field. Yeah. You, you're playing with that, trying to focus on different things at different depths. And I, and I keep seeing these things, and I, the specs, and I focus on them. And I realize it's, it's there's, there's a Swiss, but the closer down, over the, just over the trees, was, it was all spotted lanternflies. There's a spotted lanternflies everywhere I looked, because I can look, you know, onto the park over, over, over all the trees, and it was a hick, and there was lanternflies everywhere I looked. Were the Swiss? No, they're way too small. They couldn't eat one, I don't think. Uh, all right. Jimmy Swift and the lanternfly probably don't weigh that much different, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, the, the lanternflies are big. Now, we, this is something with birding and the fall migration around where, where we did the thing with Michelle, um, is that there's a guy, Lior, who I go birding with a lot. He works in my building. And um, I wish we went birding with Eeyore, this big depressed donkey. Lior <laughs> <laughs> is a very friendly, not depressed guy. He doesn't look like a donkey at all. Very, very handsome man. Um, and so we uh, we were seeing lanternflies like it, it, you you when you're doing this I don't know people who are listening are birders a lot of them are watching some of them aren't though and so you're sort of like very keyed into motion around where you're trying to see the you know warbirds or whatever else that are up in the trees and so um, your motion your your brain sort of like uh, like motion detector gets tripped by all these spotted lanternflies like lazily flying from tree mm. to tree or something like that they're they're everywhere um but yeah nothing seems and they apparently are i guess they they sequester the toxins from the lanthas or something um and that's what the bright red is it's a classic what's the word aposematic is that the right word i always forget the yeah. aposematic i've never how to pronounce it yeah. um but it's it's a warning coloration so that bird the first time a bird eats one it'll be like Ick, and spit it out mm. and then won't eat the next one you know um, and so apparently it works. <laughs> so you don't see a lot of them get needed. There was um, a swallow-tailed kite that was just north of Philadelphia in, in Lehigh County hmm. um, on this lake, and uh, people are going up to. Because that's not normal. Right. It's not common. Though. Yeah, they they normally don't breed north of North. Oh, I think South Carolina actually. Although I heard historically they, they bred pretty far up the East Coast and up the Mississippi River Valley. Um, but now you can't really find them south, you know, north, like Arkansas to like South Carolina. Um, but they, uh, they're a pretty small raptor, um, very lightly built, and they really like eating um, insects. I mean, maybe we'll eat like air, you know, like like anoles and like probably green. Uh, anoles are small as yeah, and uh, yeah. green snakes and whatnot. But they, yeah. uh, um, they really like eating insects. And, and so they were like observed dragonflies and, yeah, and they cicadas were, and such. Yeah. And they were observed eating. And in fact they've when there's been big periodical cicada movements, often the you know, they come they'll start in the south earlier and then the, the next like the they're you know, whatever they'll follow the emergence north. Yeah, because they, they uh they're all 
you know, the Tinnaker from south and north, and when they merge, it makes sense. You yeah, know? yeah. And they and they've actually fought with as big emergence as the swallowtail kites and Mississippi kites for that matter will fo- will follow them up. Huh. Um, but this one uh, was seen feeding on lantern flies. Well, it's something. I guess. Yeah. Do you know what else loves cicadas? Copperheads. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. You don't think a lot about larger snakes eating arthropods, but like copperheads will, will and they're, they're, they're very terrestrial snakes. Mm. They don't climb much, but you'll see, you'll see them climbing up in bushes, trying to get to, oh. to emerging, uh, uh, cicadas. That's cool. I'm, yeah. so it's funny. Like the, I didn't know I liked sports until like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, my friends invited me over to watch a UFC fight. And, and, uh, and you're like, what are you talking about right now? Well, my friend, my friend Catherine, she's like this, she's a social worker, uh, but trains, you know, like Muay Thai and her husband wrestled in high school. And, and so they invited me, oh, what do, so they like UFC, they want to come over and watch UFC. And I was like, ah, sure. And I was like, whoa, this is what it feels like to like sports. So like, now I'm a huge fan and I follow it. Um, but I really like the specialists, right? Like I like, like now that you have a lot of fighters who, who sports been, you know, since the nineties. I mean, it, um, so now that people have come up as just an MMA fighter, but before it was like a, a wrestler turned MMA fighter or like, uh, yeah. And like jujitsu. So I, um, but to this day, I still really like the fighters that like have a specialty. Like Daniel Cormier, he was an Olympic wrestler, and when he, he's really good at everything, but the like, you're like, come on, I can't wait till you. He he loves slamming guys, like he picks them up and like slams them. He's incredibly strong, and you're like, yes, or like you can't wait for like, you know, Demi Maya to like get someone in a rear naked choke. You, I love the specialist, right? So, um, so I, I especially in wildlife, I always love is when something bigger than you think should eats insects. So like, like jaguars. Well, what I mean, like, is more like like a. Swainson's hawks. They're they're like red shoulder hawk size, and they specialize in in, in um, orthoptera. You know, they eat lots of uh, grasshoppers. They specialize in orthoptera. Yeah, and they southwestern and plains species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got some pretty freaking big grasshoppers right out there. And where and, you're from, right from whatever, but you're. Taki briefly lived in the Panhandle of Texas, so he's from Philadelphia, and he returned. Yeah, my birth certificate actually says Philadelphia. Where was it that you lived, Abilene uh, or like that? Am- Amarillo. Amarillo is that close to Abilene? Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's close to Abilene in that there's nothing else that you can remotely say is close to Abilene besides, <laughs> like, remember the the what are they landlubber um, uh, grasshoppers? The, yeah, the lover, yeah, big big grasshoppers, big ass grasshoppers. Well, there used to be the Rocky Mountain um, grasshopper, the a locust, which is you know the thing that like the you know the story with speaking of big things eating uh, insects was the reason why. Utah state bird is the California goal. Oh, because the story about them eating all the yeah, yeah. was that there was a the Mormons crops were besieged by locusts, and the California goals came in and and, uh, and saved them. They ate them all. Uh. Now and it's funny because like people like California goal, but you ever see the great movie Tombstone? Oh. And um, there's a scene in there where uh, Wyatt Earp like. Finally, goes back to, um, I forget the woman, his love interest name, and he finally catches up with her, and he like, you know, he does the thing, but he doesn't walk and say hi. He like starts telling her like a story from, and she's like looks over, and when he goes to her, he's like, he's like, when you, he's like, you ever see the, you're standing on the Rockies and you see the sunset over California and blah blah, and like I think back in the day they used to just kind of refer everything like, 
beyond the Rockies is California, right? And California, the state, got, like, significant boundaries. So I think, like, you know, Utah was probably considered, like, part of the general area that, you know, what the West was all California. And and so there's that. And then also, the, since the goal has a significant, you know, story. But it's funny that California goal is a state board of Utah. I think it should be called the Utah goal. After all that, I, I guess you're right, yeah. Yeah. But it's not as weird as it sounds, you know, California goal, Utah, you know. So. I have a vote for the Mitt Romney goal. <laughs> <laughs> like the Romney goal. Just, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who we would talk to for that, but, you know, he did save the Olympics. <laughs> I'm just saying, say what you want about him. Say what you want. He did save the Olympics. That's all I'm going to say. Right. You ever see, one of my favorite things is, is when Bill Hader, when he's on Saturday Night Live, he played um, uh, one of his characters. He's just the best impre- in, in, impressions. Was the uh, James Carville, the like le- the super left wing like um, yeah, yeah. Was, uh, what I don't know political consultant. Yeah. yeah, and he plays him, and he's like he's he's like oh Mitt Romney. Like I know Mitt Romney looks like a president, but not everybody gets the job they they look right for. <laughs> like if I got a job I look right for I'd be king of the snakes <laughs> he does look like a straight out central casting for president yeah great know? hair yeah 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 one of the many reasons I can never be president yeah <laughs> but, yeah, but, you, but you're, you're you're you've grown it this here oh I know because that looks presidential yeah, yeah. also yeah. Billy <laughs> Billy has a yeah you have a a, a mane of Chest hair. Yeah, yeah. Again, Very on the manly. campaign trail. How does that translate? I don't know. Um, <laughs> for another year. So the spotted lanternfly outbreak has me thinking about an insect pest introduction from about 100 years ago right here in the same region, that of the Japanese beetle. The beetle is a, if you've never seen one before, it's, I don't know, about a half an inch long. Um, green and copper. It's a scarab beetle, so it looks like the most basic beetle you would draw if, like, someone asked you to, hey, please draw me a beetle. The grubs develop underground, where they eat grass roots and can damage lawns and golf courses and stuff. The adults feed on foliage above the ground, kind of skeletonizing. I'm drawing this account from a paper by Ken Frank, who has been on the podcast a few times and is the author of The Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia. His paper in this case is called The Establishment of the Japanese Beetle, Popilia Japonica, in North America near Philadelphia a century ago, and it came out in, in the Entomological News in 2016. So Ken's story, um, the story he tells, starts in 1916 with two inspectors with the New Jersey Department of Agriculture named Edgar Dickinson and Harry Bischoff Weiss. Uh, These guys found an unfamiliar scarab beetle at a plant nursery in Riverton, New Jersey, right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. The inspectors came back the next year, the summer of 1917, and found more of them. Finally got them identified as a Japanese scarab species called Popilia japonica, which I mentioned before, which in English we now call the Japanese beetle. Uh, the researchers Dickinson and Weiss learned that the beetles are pests of several crops in Japan, and so they published a report in 1918 about the beetles to let everybody know and alert regulators and everybody else to this new threat. In the article, Ken puts this report in the context of the time when the United States was just dealing with the chestnut blight, which had just like wiped out one of our most significant forest tree species in the eastern United States. We're dealing with the cotton boll weevil, um, which is another beetle. And this one had a huge economic impact in the deep south and the cotton industry. 
Um, and so we had a good appreciation for the impact of, of what pests could do economically. So Congress had passed a law, the Plant Quarantine Act of 1912, um, to deal with these sorts of problems, but had never appropriated money to fund the responses. So we had sort of the, the legal tools to impose quarantines, but not the money to actually do it. So it fell to New Jersey initially to provide funding, and they gave, um, the, the, gave Weiss and some other colleagues basically a third of what they asked for. They asked for $15,000, they got $5,000. Um, the nursery where the beetles were found, the Henry Dreer Nursery, was a large and nationally important nursery. Now, you, I don't know, this doesn't come to my mind usually when I think of what's a big industry around Philadelphia, but if we think back to the mid-1700s when the Bartram started exporting plants to Europe, uh, the nursery industry was kind of big around Philadelphia. Uh, and so this nursery, the Henry Dreer Nursery, was large, nationally important, um, and its president, Jacob David Eisel, had been a leader in the lobbying fight against the Plant Quarantine Act earlier. And so this guy was not interested in cooperating much with the fight against the beetle. He claimed that it wasn't really that big a deal, um, and he had motivation to fight it because the most effective option at that point would have been to basically mow down any of the plants in the vicinity of the beetles, that's including the nursery stock, and burn the ground. This was mentioned as one of the responses at the time to actually pour oil on the ground and light it on fire. So, um, in 1919, they hired someone to try to, to fight the beetle, a guy named C.H. Goodwin. By the way, he lasted a year, then quit. The next guy who got hired quit also after another year. In any case, um, when they began the fight against the beetle, uh, they spared the nursery. Instead, they relied on hand-picking of the beetles combined with the application of some really shocking stuff to our ears today. Um, these were pesticides that were state-of-the-art back then, uh, but basically they maintained a layer of a powder of lead arsenate on foliage and poured sodium cyanide solution on the grub-infested ground. So we're using you know, combinations of lead, arsenic, and cyanide. Just think about that for a moment when we complain about our pesticides today. I'm not saying we shouldn't complain about pesticides today, but not everything has gotten worse over time. <laughs> Some things have actually gotten maybe a little better. Um, in 1918, the Federal Horticultural Board decided to impose a quarantine. So this is, again, authorized by that, that Plant Quarantine Act. Um, but for the first year, it didn't include the nursery. For some reason, it just targeted, well, for some reason, because lobbying, um, it targeted corn grown around the nursery. So they inspected it and tried to keep the beetles from getting over the river into Philadelphia, where they would then possibly be transported back out to who knows where all across the country. But by the, by, the end of, by the end of 1919, it was clear the beetles had jumped the containment line. They were devouring pretty much every kind of crop and ornamental plant they could find in surrounding New Jersey. Um, they made it into Camden County, which is next to Burlington County, where Riverton is. Uh, the Federal Horticultural Board expanded the quarantine, um, added all kinds of produce along with the corn, but by the end of the summer in 1920, the beetle was over the river in Philadelphia. And the reason is probably because the beetles can fly. You can try to inspect as much corn and produce as you want, but if the beetles can literally fly across the Delaware River um, and on from there, there's not much you can do to stop them. Um, so from there, they just kept on expanding into the surrounding countryside. They reached some pretty impressive population densities. Um, one orchard report that Ken cites, they picked, they, they you know, were hand-picking beetles off of the foliage, and one day of beetle picking yielded 60 bushels of beetles. Um, in 1932, 
Researchers surveyed damage to some of the beetles' favorite crops and found the beetles had achieved a defoliation rate of 75 to 100 percent over 1,500 square miles. Um, regulators periodically imposed embargoes on Philadelphia produce. This is in the mid-1920s for the most part, which caused a whole lot of big problems for the produce industry around Philadelphia. Um, control methods focused on, you guessed it, more lead arsenate, um, which contaminated soil and sickened people as far away as Britain who ate the sprayed fruit. Um, to this day, uh, former orchards in the region have pretty toxic soil um, thanks to the spring. So again, like you could, you could get your soil tested living in some subdivision in South Jersey um, or around Philadelphia uh, and have really high lead contamination in your soil. And the reason in a lot of cases is because all the lead arsenate they sprayed on crops back in you know, 100 years ago. Um, luckily though, the beetles seemed to peak in their population density, I guess, in 1926 and declined from there. Ken cites a bunch of possible reasons. Uh, the USDA and other agencies imported a variety of biological control agents for the beetles, including parasitoid wasps and flies, nematodes and fungi, um, maybe native pathogens and predators also might have developed a taste for the beetles. Uh, land use changes like reforestation of old farmland and urbanization might have also made the ground a little less hospitable for the larvae. Um, so while they're around um, and they're certainly still a pest, um, they aren't quite as bad as they were right when they were introduced. And so now when you look at their range in the United States, uh, they infest every state east of the Mississippi River um, and they've gotten over the river to a few states on the other side as well. And so this might not immediately seem like an urban wildlife story, um, since we're talking about agriculture for the most part, um, but cities, as I like to point out, aren't just concentrations of humans in a place, and they're not just our alteration of the landscape. Cities are also uh, concentrations of flows of resources. Um, they're hubs of resource networks that stretch out into rural landscapes. Philadelphia and Allentown, PA are places where lanternflies can hitch rides back out of cities and reach the entire country, basically. Um, likewise, Philadelphia 1916 was a place where agricultural products could flow in with beetles and out with beetles. Um, and it was, of course, the port where the nursery industry concentrated, exporting North American species to Europe, like I talked about before, and critically in the Japanese beetle story, importing exotic species from around the globe, um, including their pests. Exotic invasive. <laughs> Japanese beetles. Um, I realize that not everyone knows what Japanese beetles are. We were just sort of talking, we were just listening to this and talking about it. And um, they haven't really made it very much yet west of the Mississippi River in North America. I mean, if you live, I suppose, in Japan, you would know the scarab beetles we're talking about. But if you live elsewhere in the world, we got listeners a lot of places, you might not have seen one. I think I talked about it a little bit in this, but they, they're really pretty yeah, very scarab strong. beetles. Like a bronze, bronzy wings with like an emerald green body with little white spots like on their abdomen. Yeah, they're very, they're very, and they their grubs are like very commonly seen in lawns. They're like little white, like like a little white comma almost. Yeah, and uh, it's a common C shape. And uh, uh, Angie and I we went down the shore, uh, say to Cape May, and um, on the grounds of the Cape May is beautiful. Um, besides great for birding, it's also this beautiful Victorian or Edwardian era like uh, seaside town and this beautiful architecture. And we stayed at this classic bed and breakfast. And um, there was a a skunk <laughs> in the grass um, eating 
would I oh, see, digging up the lawn for the grubs? Yeah, and like yeah. so it was, and every night you'd be out there like digging the grubs, and it was you know really cool. So do you know what else do you think of that eats the grubs? I'm throwing quickly. Like, the birds? No, the grubs. The uh, think of another of an insect that. An insect that Do you know the little blue winged wasps? Um, yeah. Yeah. So the the blue winged wasps that you see a lot of are scarab hunters. Uh-huh. Oh really? So when you see them like flying low over like the turf, you know, like over oh, grass, yeah. like they're they're however they're looking for them, they're sniffing out the the grubs, and then they they lay their eggs on the grubs, and then they like you know like any any good any good parasitoid wasp, they mm-hmm. uh, they uh, what? Oh. Well, actually, are they? Par- I don't know if they're parasitoid or not. I don't know if they dig a burrow, drag them in there. Uh, oh yeah, anything that 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 the host gets killed is a parasitoid. Oh, okay, so it's the, whole, the whole yeah, because it's parasite like, but the if the host gets killed, they call it parasitoid. Which reminds me, which I, I mentioned it to you guys in a in a text, but we haven't really talked about it too much. Is the other podcast I'm doing another one? Another one? What is it? Another one. I don't know what the title is, but it's going to be. It's a podcast I'm doing with is Nelson Melendez. Getting there, Nelson Melendez from um, who's been on here before, yeah, and Phil Freda. Um, there's two good buddies from grad school. Nelson's in the herps. Phil's in the you know he's genetics guy. Uh, but those two are nuts about um, fantasy and sci-fi. So we're doing a podcast on the biology of fantasy and sci-fi. Oh, you were talking about aliens. Yeah. And so you were texting f- about like you social insects, and I was like, what about parasitism? So now you're getting <laughs> so, the f- well, so the first yeah. episode is going well, was going to be a couple episodes, but the first subject we're tackling is is the alien franchise, and they're both they both have a so parasitoid. Take you. What do you think of when you think of aliens? Um, I think of the scene with Ridley Scott leaning against like the wall, and then like the little tongue. Oh, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver. Ridley was oh. actor. Yeah, yeah. My bad. I'm sorry. I don't know who people are. But do you remember how the 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 aliens like kill people aside from the big ones killing you? Um, the face huggers would impregnate your face through your to your belly, and then they would shoot out at some point. Exactly. They pop out of your belly. Yeah. Yeah. And like so. Well, the wasp does it directly. It doesn't have like it doesn't have a a vector, right? Like it doesn't have like this, like in, you know, like a. Um, but aliens are parasitoid because the host gets killed by the parasite. And it was it was inspired by parasitoid wasps. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the, the actual design and, and thinking of how those things killed in the movie. So there's yeah. um, gonna be podcasts. It's gonna be Sorry. me and and so it's gonna be Phil Nelson and I discussing the whole franchise and about like. You know, I kind of mad at Ridley Scott because I feel like he changed with with Covenant and Prometheus. He kind of changed what I thought. I thought it was just a, a thing on its own. Like, and he changed. Well, can, I think you can still regard it as its own thing. But then he changed it to a, 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 um, a bioweapon. You know. Oh. But anyway, so did you like Alien franchise? I never watched it. Mm. You never watched it because no, I, I almost said. In that, when I was talking about seeing at the rest stop, I was almost going to say like, "Game over, game over." Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, best moment in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, so um, Doug Sponsor, who's talking about squash bees. Yeah. He's a he's a you know, uh, I'm it an expert. Yeah. And so he's going to discuss the. We're going to. He we, he came over the other night. He's my neighbor. Um, it's a shame he's moving to Germany. It's heartbreaking because my wife has become friends with his wife. And he's a really nice. We guy. have a daughter on yeah. the way. He's got two daughters. We're like, oh man, we had this really great thing. They're like literally our closest friends. An old buddy of Robin. What? Robin Irsari is old buddies. Uh, oh wow. 
Yeah, and so they're like, they're they live like literally like around the corner. It's a long corner, but they live around the corner, and like yeah. so it's nice to have them around. Uh, anyway, so Doug came over and we watched Aliens together, and and uh, he, when he gets back from visiting his wife's family in, in Wyoming, we're going to discuss um, the whole you social insect and you social behavior aspect of it. Uh, we're going to do that, and then I'm going to hopefully catch up with Jason Wexstein from the Academy, who's a parasite expert. We're going to talk about the parasite aspect of it. So we're going to, and then so that's the idea. We're going to cover, you know, and I'm really I'm working on now. Uh, I, I want to do things soon, and I have a couple friends that have worked oh, the film work in, in Antarctica. You got to do the Wrath of Khan, just the scene where those things go in your ear, the guy's oh, ear, yeah. and then they control his brain after that. Yeah, you can totally do like horsehair worms. Oh yeah, yeah, nematodes, yeah, anything like that. Yeah, that so that's going to be a really fun one, I think. But I was thinking about the ants, the fungus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, there's a scene in this movie Wrath of Khan where like they put like a glass. Do you remember this type? Did you ever see it? Yeah. Wrath of all right, so there's a glass globe that they put over your head with these two bugs, and they look like I think they're just hissing cockroaches. But they, the the idea is that then they they you can't stop them because there's this helmet on, and they crawl into your ear, and they like eat into your brain, and they control you. And so mm-hmm. it's one of the more horrifying scenes in a movie mm-hmm. ever. Um, but it is more or less what tons of parasites yeah that's do to their hosts. I mean, this kind of also reminded me of a what was the terrible Vietnam War movie. Um, actually movies with um, Chuck Norris and they do the thing where they put a bag over his head with a rat as torture and then they pull and then like they pull the bag off of it and uh, he he had he had killed a rat in his mouth <laughs> it was like so you never ever grow up with Chuck Norris oh like, well like, I'm living in Texas I've heard every single Chuck Norris the thing, <laughs> thing about Chuck Norris is like is you grew up well, Chuck Norris was a joke because it's Walker Texas right Yeah, there. yeah, one hundred. I grew up. Chuck Norris was like, he was the shit. Like he was like, he was an action hero. Yeah, he was like, yeah. you're you're like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is kind of like, like fake. Like Chuck Norris is like the real deal. He's really did karate. He had Chuck Norris dolls. Like Chuck Norris was like real. He's real, and he's the, he was a really <laughs> tough guy. And then like now it became like a joke. But yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we should end the episode on a joke. Yeah. I think we're in good shape. Yeah. I think, I think we covered right. it. And we All look right. for we hope everybody isn't displeased. I hope our subscribers aren't like, what is this? And they're embracing the the more content. And we have the, a lot of this because of our Patreon supporters. Indeed. Yeah. And how can you support the podcast, Tony? You can support it by liking us, um, the podcast, uh, you giving us, us good reviews. Uh, and also you can support us on Patreon. We do have a Patreon um, channel. The channel or page, whatever we have, Patreon. And seriously, like some of the equipment has been purchased uh, via via Patreon. A lot of it's will be purchased via Patreon because it's on my credit card right now. <laughs> like fifteen hundred dollars worth of equipment is on my credit card. Um, but hey, you gotta take a little risk. You know what I'm saying? I'll be clear that the Urban Wildlife Podcast to date has very much been a labor of love. Um, we have we have day jobs. We we do this in our spare time. We've bought the equipment and pay for the hosting and everything out of our pockets. So. It's not like you're you're helping us buy a boat or something like that. We're just sort of yeah, yeah catching up a little bit on what we've put out yeah. for it. And so thank you very much if you do contribute. It means a lot to us. Thank yes, you. thank you so much. Um, and otherwise, uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. Uh, you can email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Give us your ideas. As you found out in this episode, we love listener recorded content. If you're not sure about it, email me first and we can or us first and we can uh, talk a little bit about what you'd like to record. 
Um, but you know, there's cities all around the world with wildlife in it. And, and if you're there looking at it, we want to hear about it. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thanks. And thanks for Margaret for being on today's episode. Yeah, happy to be here.